Are you confused about real food and what's healthy and good for the planet? Do you need the facts about local, organic, and sustainable food? Well, get ready to change the way you eat. Get ready for The Appropriate Omnivore with Aaron Zober. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Appropriate Omnivore on New Distant Radio. My guest today is Catherine Lucas of Farmhouse Culture. Plus, the desserts will tell you how to live appropriately in the upcoming week. But first, let's go to the appetizers and find out what's happening in the world of real food. Last week, I reported about Wisconsin raw dairy farmer Vernon Hirschberger being acquitted on three of four charges. Now, already, the Wisconsin Department of Justice is attempting to revoke the terms of the bond and arrest Hirschberger. In March 2012, a letter was sent to the courthouse that Hirschberger was violating his bond conditions by continuing to sell food without a retail license. The judge said he only responds to motions, not letters. No motion had been filed until last week. The jury made it pretty clear last week that they don't view Hirschberger committing a crime for selling his food. The state of Wisconsin needs to move on. Of course, I see the real issue here is not about Hirschberger's right to sell, but about a fight against raw milk. In other raw milk news, the Maine Senate has voted for a bill that would allow farmers to sell small amounts of raw milk without a license directly to consumers if there are labels on the milk clearly explaining everything. The bill also allows farmers producing less than 20 gallons of raw milk, cheese, yogurt, cream, butter, or kefir to sell their products directly to consumers at farms and farmers markets without any licensing or inspections. After the recent news about Vernon Hershberger, it's great to see some good news about food freedom. Also, the Connecticut Senate has approved a compromise bill that would require foods with genetically modified ingredients to be labeled as long as four of the states that border Connecticut enact similar legislation. Foods that are completely or partially made with GMOs would have a label that says produced with genetic engineering. The legislation will next move to Connecticut's House of Representatives for a vote. And it's still a long way to go, considering several neighboring states have to also approve. But it shows they're at least heading in the right direction with GMO labeling. And finally, in other GMO news, Japan has canceled an order to buy grains from the U.S. after the recent discovery of a GMO wheat variety created by Monsanto many years ago. Other top Asian wheat importers are closely examining things as well. Although the genetically modified wheat was never approved, this shows how other countries don't support growing GMO crops. And now for our main course, which today is sauerkraut. Sauerkraut is another great traditional fermented food and an excellent source for probiotics. But a lot of the sauerkraut that you find in the stores today isn't the real thing. Lots of sauerkrauts are made with pasteurized vinegar. Real sauerkraut is fermented with water and salt and doesn't use vinegar. And even some of the fermented sauerkrauts in the supermarkets aren't fermented for a long enough period. Here to talk with me about making real traditional sauerkraut is Catherine Lucas. Catherine is CKO of Farmhouse Culture, a sauerkraut that's made the true old-fashioned way with lactic acid fermentation or culturing as it's referred. Catherine, thank you so much for coming on my program. 
Thanks for having me, Aaron. It's great to have you. And when I say CKO, that is in Chief Crowd Officer, which I just love that title. <laughs> yeah, it's a little, it's it's fun. I think so. It's cute and gets the point across exactly what you do. So how exactly did you get into making sauerkraut in the first place? Well, you know, I fell in love with sauerkraut uh, fresh out of the barrel when I lived in Germany. I had a restaurant there. I learned how to cook there in the 90s and uh, tasted, you know, fresh kraut for the first time. And I'd grown up with canned kraut and didn't really like it, to tell you the truth. And so in Germany, of course, there's <laughs> a lot of sauerkraut and uh, we served it in our restaurant as well. I just didn't like it that much. And I discovered through a farmer some of his fresh kraut and fell in love with it and then discovered that it was available at a market, um, like a farmer's market uh, uh, that was on every day there. And I just, it was just like a revelation. I just had no idea that it could taste so good and fresh and crunchy. And uh, I just, I just fell in love with it. So I started using it in my restaurant, uh, more in raw dishes and the Germans tend to prefer it uh, cooked, but they were open to it. And uh, it kind of, that's where my love affair started. And then when I came home, I went through a natural chef culinary program and learned how to ferment. And it was just really um, so stimulating to try and figure out how these ingredients that I was putting together with some salt would taste with the addition of sour later on after they'd fermented. It was a real challenge as a, for, you know, for a chef to create these sort of these flavor profiles with your imagination. And I just fell in love with it. And I loved how good everything tasted when it was made fresh and not pasteurized. The kraut in Germany, was that not fermented? It was indeed fermented, and then it's typically pasteurized and canned uh, once it is here. Right. Unless you go to, there was a place in Stuttgart where I lived called Markthalle, and there was this old German guy who would pull the kraut out of a big barrel with his bare hand and throw it on some butcher paper and weigh it out by the kilo for you. And sometimes he had a cigarette hanging out of his mouth at the same time. And that's the way you bought fresh kraut. And uh, I, when I discovered this, I was pretty enthusiastic about the whole thing. When you talked about the canned kraut, that was my first reaction was it was probably also pasteurized, which pasteurization, that kills all of the healthy bacteria that's in the sauerkraut. So fermented certainly is really the only way to go with kraut, I would say. Yeah, fermented and raw. That's the big deal, right? Because a lot of people, um, you know, still make sauerkraut the old-fashioned way and ferment it for several weeks and do all the right things. But then to make it shelf-stable so they don't have to deal with having it in the refrigerator or shipping it around the country in refrigeration, uh, they pasteurize it. And uh, it's not, you know, it's, it's just it, it loses a lot of its interest for me culinarily, uh, but certainly nutritionally. And, uh, you know, in, in traditional cultures would make sauerkraut in the fall time together as a village. They still do this, you know, with kimchi in Korea. And uh, they would put quite a bit of salt in it. They'd ferment it for, you know, three or four weeks or whatever. And then, and then they would leave it in their root cellar where the temperature was, you know, earth temperature, maybe 50, 52 degrees, something like that. And they could leave it there all through the winter and early spring. Uh, and that would sustain them. That would be, you know, one of their important vegetables for for the um, the, the 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 dark months. And so um, you had to put more salt in it in order to make it last longer at that temperature. 
And one of the advantages of the way we make it now and with it, with you know the advent of refrigeration is we can stop the fermentation, say at three or four weeks and put it in the refrigeration, put it in refrigeration. That slows it down significantly. The process, the bacteria are still alive, but they're very sluggish. And so we can use significantly less salt. And, uh, of course, we don't have to pasteurize either if we put it in the refrigerator. So that seems to be a really important part of, of eating healthy raw kraut. Certainly on the appropriate omnivore, we're not a fan of the pasteurization process. We don't think much of Louis Pasteur, and we like everything raw from our milk to our pickles that are fermented instead of pasteurized. And we just love all kinds of raw ferments like kombucha and beet kvass. And so certainly sauerkraut is another one of those that has the great benefits of eating a raw food with lots of living healthy bacteria. Yeah, you know, Aaron, also one uh, a fun fact about Louis Pasteur is that he was hired by a brewing company to discover what was causing the beer to go sour. And he discovered it was lactic acid. And lactic acid is what's primarily responsible for sauerkraut fermentation. So uh, interestingly, he, you know, he was a he had, when he figured out that lactic acid what was um, part of the fermentation process for sauerkraut, he was never an advocate of pasteurizing it. Ironically, <laughs> <laughs> uh, he said, "You know, this is one of the safest foods. This is a this is a natural form of pasteurization. Lactic acid fermentation is a form of pasteurization. So pasteurization is really a modern invention, and I think uh, you know the folks that started doing it." 75 years ago to sauerkraut didn't realize what they were losing uh, when they when they um, pasteurized it. But now we understand the microbiology a little better. And it's, it's just like, why would you eat it canned anymore if you understood how nutritious it is and how good it tastes? That's the other thing. How fresh and crunchy it tastes if you eat it raw. And with the canned sauerkraut, you also have the risk of BPAs that are likely in the can that you get it. And I like what you bring up earlier about Louis Pasteur and discovering this in beer. A lot of people don't realize that pasteurization actually started with beer and not with milk. And there are a lot of pasteurized beers. Any foreign beer that's imported here is pasteurized, yet you go to the country where it originates and there it's not pasteurized. And that's why people wonder why Stella tastes different in Europe. It's not the water. It's that in Europe, it's not pasteurized. Here it is. So beer is another drink that it actually has some health benefits if you have an unpasteurized beer. Huh. I didn't, I didn't realize it was um, not pasteurized in Europe, but it makes sense. Right. It's all about some requirement that our government puts forward that anything that's imported has to be pasteurized. But we are certainly learning about the benefits of unpasteurized food because, like you said, pasteurization is a new thing. It was only discovered within the last 100 or 150 years ago. So our ancestors and cultures throughout generations, they'd remained healthy eating unpasteurized food. Right. Right. And we're, our understanding, our deeper understanding now of of microbiology and what's happening in the bacterial world around us is so exciting to me. Uh, and I'm hoping that governments, as they become more knowledgeable and this becomes more mainstream, this knowledge, um, that it's so important to create, you know, a balanced ecosystem within the bacterial world uh, that maybe they'll loosen up on some of this and realize that, uh, you know, the there's some of their strategies for keeping the public safe are actually, uh, you know, counterproductive. That would be nice if the government would warm up to it after hearing this research, because right now, federally, raw milk is banned. State by state, 
it differs as far as it's legal, but the feds can, if what I understand, can still come after you for consuming raw milk. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. I was in Hungary last year in a small village not far from the border uh, to Austria, and they had a milk machine outside the grocery store, and you could bring your empty bottle and press a button and get fresh raw milk right out of the machine. And I, I asked some questions and asked around, and they have a co-op there, and these are all small farmers that sell their milk to this co-op, and then the co-op delivers it to these machines, and that's the way the Hungarians buy their milk. <laughs> Isn't that great? I love that. I'm of Hungarian descent, so that always makes yeah. me proud. There's a lot of things to be proud of Hungary about. Also, the fact that they just recently destroyed all their GMO fields. Did they really? They did. They're one of several countries that GMOs are banned. Actually, all the countries that I'm a descent of, GMOs are banned. I'm also of German descent, and Germany has banned GMOs, and also Russia. A lot of countries have gone further than simply labeling GMOs, but fully banning them, which... For me, originally, the thought of banning GMOs, I was a little on the fence. I'm not for banning a lot of things, things such as high fructose corn syrup and other toxins that we put in the food. A lot of times I say, well, we could just avoid them, but I've kind of changed my mind because there is a big problem with these GMOs blowing over into non-GMO fields. Right, like this week with the whole wheat Thing, right? Right. That was very scary hearing that. And it makes you wonder how much of this wheat is GMO. Even though I know Monsanto said they stopped the project, it doesn't mean that some people haven't continued with growing these GMO wheat crops. And what else out there is there that is GMO that we don't know? Yeah. You know, I heard Andrew Kimball um, speak at the EcoFarm conference a few years ago. And you know, what he said was inspiring to me, and I just keep holding this as something that might might uh, be the case in the future. He said, you know, don't worry too much about uh, GMO stuff because it's not working. It's not successful. Half the stuff that they try to create is not successful. The real issue is patenting of seeds, patenting of life. And he says, you know, we should take our focus off of the GMO thing and put it more on that. Um, I don't know if that's really true or not, but it seems like it is limited to just a handful of crops, at least. And um, we just got non-GMO certified, and I was very, very happy to discover that so far nobody has tried to create a GMO um, uh, cabbage. <laughs> so, so we have no chance of cross-contamination out there at the moment. But it is scary for people who are really trying to do the right thing in their fields how do you protect your fields from seed floating in, you know, by the truck who's driving by with grain or, or whatever? It's, it's, uh, it's going to be hard to regulate and manage. It just seems like we need to not have it in our system at all. You're right. There are only are a few crops. I'm certainly glad that some of these ones haven't been approved. Yet it's also scary because we're hearing new ones getting approved, like, just recently. I don't know if it's been fully approved yet, but it's looking pretty likely that this GMO salmon is going to be approved. And I appreciate that, that you're products say it's non-GMO. What is your thought about that, of it being the non-GMOs that are labeled right now and not the GMOs? <laughs> I think it's pretty interesting. And, and I, think, I think the labeling thing just has to pass. I, I couldn't believe it didn't pass in California. I was absolutely shocked to tell you the truth. I just It didn't cross my mind that it wouldn't pass here because I think of California as generally educated population, and I didn't think that they would buy into the 
the you know the millions of dollars that the media put into scaring them away from from the GMO labeling. And um, so I, I'm pretty frustrated. And and uh, I would say that you know in the next round we'll be will be a louder voice um, because we just, I, I, why not let people know? I just, I don't get it. I don't get it. I think so too. I think it'll go stronger the next round. A lot of people wonder why it failed. The question, was it the way the proposition was written? I don't think so. I think it ultimately came down to the no on 37 had more money and they outspent us. But although I'm disappointed, certainly, that it didn't pass, I'm glad at what it accomplished. I think a lot more people are aware of GMOs. And just a couple weeks ago, there was this March Against Monsanto held worldwide. I kind of wonder if we would have had the march if it wasn't for Prop 37. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's a good point. Point. I was really, really happy to see that, and and that Monsanto is generally generally regarded, whether you're conservative or liberal, as a, not a doer of good. <laughs> they are not a company that that has much uh, um, consumer confidence. I don't think, which is really great. If if the GMO conversation raised more awareness around around that, then then that's, that was a really positive thing. And, and many times with these sort of movements, you know, it's two steps forward, one step back. And, and I, think, I think we'll get there. We'll get there soon. I do. We will see it. And now other states are making legislation or putting propositions, depending on how that state works. And hopefully some of these other states can get it passed. I'm glad that this is happening because when Prop 37 was going on, I was hearing from everyone it needs to pass in order for other states to do it. And I'm glad that simply Prop 37 being out there has influenced other states to try to pass their own legislation, even though it didn't pass here. Yeah, yeah, me too. Yeah, so you were, how was the March Against Monsanto? Was there a big turnout? You know, I don't know. I didn't participate. Um, okay. I didn't see that much happening in Santa Cruz. I read about it the next day. And I don't know if I'm living too much in my business bubble and I work too many hours and I don't read as many of my my activist newsletters anymore that I <laughs> but I kind of missed it. How was it where you are? It was pretty good. We hoped for a bigger turnout, but I think beggars can't be choosers. I'm glad that we did get the turnout we did in downtown LA. There were about a thousand people, which I think is a lot. I'm interested to know where you read about it. Was this in one of the activist newsletters? No, I actually read about it in our local paper. Uh, how did your local paper do as far as coverage on it? I'd really well, actually. Oh, really? Well, you live up in Santa Cruz, right? Yeah, we do. Yeah, so I could see there how a Santa Cruz paper may actually do a good job. I thought the LA Times coverage of it was terrible, and it's been a thing that's sadly been ignored by a lot of the mainstream media. Yeah, it's strange, isn't it? <laughs> it is. The LA Times, they did an article on it, but the article was very middle of the road, and they tried to give the other side of it too, supporting the arguments of the no on 37, so... It didn't really do much to help the cause because the article kind of took a neutral stance almost saying, well, maybe what these people that were marching against Monsanto were saying isn't right. And that's not what we want. Yeah, no, it's not. And it's it's also good, though, that they, they presented sort of a neutral voice. I guess that's their job, right? Present both sides. It is. I guess that's journalism. Would have liked maybe if there was some editorial talking about the advantages of it or just something more because just we haven't seen much. And although they did have a neutral side and maybe that's good, like you'd said about how it brings both sides together, 
in the Weston Price community, we have people from all sides of the political spectrum, and it's great that this is something we all agree on to label GMOs. Yeah. Or most of us do. You have some people that think that it's not the federal government's job to mandate GMO labeling. Actually, at the Farm to Consumer Legal Defense Fund dinner before the Weston Price Conference this November, there's going to be a great Lincoln-Douglas-style debate with Joseph Mercola and Joel Salatin they're going to have a debate on whether it is the federal government's job to mandate GMO labeling. Oh, well, that'll be an interesting face-off because they're both very good speakers. And um, Joel Salatin is so passionate. Uh, he doesn't want government anywhere in our food. And, um, you know, th there's a good argument for that. <laughs> I think so. I think it'll be quite a debate to see. Yeah, they both, I think, will make good arguments. It's, it's good for all of us to be so stimulated, uh, and it really tests our, our thought patterns and, and the best way to approach some of this. These are big issues, you know, and I would like to live in a world where we can count on companies to do the right thing without government intervention, but I have to tell you, I haven't seen that to be the case. And having lived in Europe where there is a lot of government control, um, I, I found that consumers were generally better protected uh, in, in positive ways. They just have to, they seem to have less business influence on the government regulations there. And so the, the, the rules seem to make more sense. And that's not always the case. There are certainly great examples of bureaucratic snafus over there too. But I just generally feel, feel safer when I'm there. I feel like the food that I'm eating is safer. I feel like if I get hurt, that I um, will be taken care of. Um, I know that uh, if I'm working and I'm paying into the system, that I'll be able to, um, you know, retire in a in a decent way, uh, even if I don't have a couple million dollars in the bank. And it's just it's interesting the the experience I have um, spending time in Europe and in and the states every year and seeing the different perspectives. And and I have to tell you, ultimately, I I feel like government does need to have some control over what um, corporations practices with our food. It's just, what's that control look like? And who, you know, is, is it corporations, you know, playing revolving doors with um, with the government <laughs> regulation um, offices? Uh, you know, that's, that's what's kind of, there's too much intermingling here between corporate, you know, work for a corporation this year, work for the government next year, work for the corporation next year. And it just, the interests are, are not, too many stakeholders are in the wrong positions of power. I think that's a problem a lot because I can certainly understand the argument for government intervention and regulation, but the current people we have running our government organizations for food safety, the USDA and the FDA, certainly those aren't the ones that I have any faith in, in controlling our food safety. Yeah, yeah, and you can't blame Joe Salatin for not having any faith in them either. Oh, no. For me personally, for food safety, I go for more of the nonprofit organizations. I think there are a lot of great ones. That's how I find out what food is safe. I like to go to different watchdog organizations. Certainly the Weston A. Price Foundation is a great one. Also, Food and Water Watch is great. And there are a number of good organizations, I think, that are good watchdogs to find out what problems are going on in our agriculture system. Oh, yeah. That's good to know. That's good to know. You know, I, I tend to um, try and just eat as close to home as possible. And, um, you know, it's kind of an exciting time to have it to be a, a, in the food business because there's so much transparency now. And I love the fact that I can go to uh, the store and if I'm looking at a product that I don't know, I can usually put the website right in my, my phone and I can 
look at the company's website and determine, is this a company that's in line with my values? Is this a company that I want to do business with? Um, especially as a woman, you know, we make such, women have this, this responsibility, I think, to start educating themselves about the companies they're doing business with. Uh, we make most of the buying decisions when it comes to food. And so I feel like we also take, should take a lot of the responsibility for um, some of the problems with childhood obesity and uh, you know, a host of other problems that are food-related health problems. And so I, I feel like there's now more information than there's ever been available to, to mothers or women who are doing a lot of the shopping. And uh, I love that technology is intersecting with the natural world here to create this transparency that helps us become better consumers. Because as Michael Pollan says, right, the, the, the industrial food system relies on our ignorance. And uh, so that's, that's something I'm really excited about in terms of a development with technology. So do you feel that there are certain things that are done in your business practices that are very much because it's run by a female? Wow, that's, that's a really good question. Um, you know, I was at a slow money conference in Boulder a few weeks ago, really fascinating um, conference and group of people. And there was a guy there speaking about why, why women are, um, you know, going to lead the real business change in the future. And one of the studies said that women are better at long-term thinking when they're making business decisions. We're thinking about future generations, and these are generalizations, of course, this is not across the board, but, but men tend to make uh, decisions that are, are more focused on more immediate gains. And I thought that was interesting, and I don't know, uh, I, I don't know if that plays into my company, but I certainly do think about my grandchildren and my great-grandchildren and, and the generations to come, and I, I have to say that sort of thinking has influenced me. Um, you know, when I study Native American traditions or Japanese traditions, uh, they're they're looking at you know seven generations ahead. I think I think women might have more of a tendency to do that, but I think there are certainly men who also embrace the feminine um, and you know want to make decisions that care for the planet uh, uh, also and for the future generations. And so many of the decisions that we make in this sort of fast culture. Um, particularly in business, it's all about like surviving and getting through and making the shareholders happy and um, doing whatever you got to do to get through. And it's 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 a it's a system problem, but it's also a thinking problem. And uh, so it's um, that's something we I guess we really do focus on that in our business. Every every decision that we make, uh, we're trying to think about how is this going to impact the planet, how is this going to impact the people. Um, you know, is this something that's really a sustainable decision for us as a company? Uh, so we do think a lot in those terms. And I don't know if that's the feminine, um, but I guess it is. What do you think? <laughs> it sounds like the feminine, but also like you would mentioned earlier, you had studied some of the Native American traditions. And I think that can also influence a lot of is this sustainable and is this good for the planet? I'm trying to learn more about that, too, because I think there's a lot we can learn from the native ways about how food is grown. And I'm big on the native way because I love their concept of eating the whole animal. Yeah, waste nothing. Right. We were talking a little earlier about government certification. And one thing I know is your product is USDA certified organic. And 
I know that's something that a lot of people feel USDA certification to be organic. It's just a certification product and you can be organic without getting the certification. Yet Jennifer House of Cocoa Farms, it's an apple farms up in Northern California. She made a good point to me and said, it is a good idea to have a farm be certified organic because the thing is, if it's certified organic, then all of the areas around it can't spray either. How do they prevent that? I'm not sure. And of course, this is government that I would imagine is the one that has to prevent it. So take from it what you will about if they do their job or not. But that's what I've heard is that if you're certified organic, then the areas around you too have to be organic and not use any spraying. Ah, that seems like that'd be really hard to enforce. It is. Like I said, it's trusting that the government is able to actually enforce it, but it shows that perhaps there are some advantages of going with the USDA certified organic. Yeah, you know, we uh, we actually use an, a certifying agency here for our certification called um, CCOF, and they're right actually in Santa Cruz, and I think they're one of the bigger certifiers. And, you know, they're really nice people. Um, they've, they have uh, forced us to get really organized with the way we trace products. It's all really good good stuff. And, uh, and it's, it's, I think it's, I think generally speaking, cert certification is a good thing. What I, what I prefer <laughs> are the beyond organic practices. You know, organic, I think has gotten a little watered down. And um, just because something's organic doesn't mean that it's sustainably raised or, or grown. And uh, I wish that there was I don't know if there's a certification that needs to happen or if it's um, just a company coming out and saying, this is what this is our promise to you. These are the things we do. I'm not sure the best way to approach it, but I think sustainability needs to be the measurement of success and not whether or not it's organic anymore. A lot of people have been saying that, that perhaps there's going to be a new term other than organic that shows something beyond. Hybrix farming is a new type of concept, and that's something that's way beyond organic. I'm not sure specifically either what needs to be done, but certainly organic isn't perfect because there can be heavily processed foods that can be certified organic. Right. That's right. And, and they don't really pay any attention to the ecosystem. And that's really what I'm interested in is, um, you know, are we... Are we doing something that's in harmony with the with the larger system? It's it's not because of any sort of you know crazy spiritual idea I have about you know um, the, the way things should be. It's it's like this is the smart way to do it for God's sakes. I mean this is just smart, and that we're still working outside of that ecosystem is is just incredibly frustrating to me. Um, to to create these systems that absolutely are not closed loop systems when it's not hard to create closed loop systems. Uh, so I, yeah, I, I, you know, I want to, do you ever watch, um, Ted TV? Yeah. They have some good stuff on there. I'm going to diverge for a minute, but do you know who Dan Barber is? No. He's a chef who's really interested in sustainability. He's a, a Michelin star rated chef on the East coast. I'm, I'm not, um, thinking of the name of his restaurant right now. And, uh, he talks about a, a fish his favorite fish that he fell in love with. It's just a wonderful TED video if you get a chance to watch it. And it was one of the most inspiring things I've seen in, in many, many months. And uh, it's about a very degraded area of um, swampy land on the very southern part of Spain that has been converted into fish farming that is completely a closed loop system. They're not putting anything into the system uh, once they did the restoration and they're fishing 
thousands and thousands of pounds, thousands of pounds of fish from this system. And he doesn't call himself, a, the, the scientist and the guy who's, who's working on this project calls himself a system specialist. And I, I hope that we can see more and more um, movement towards that sort of thinking in everything we do, right? Not just in, in farming. Um, but I was so excited to, to see that they, literally algae is what's feeding the fish. They're not, they're not putting any, any, any inputs at all. Um, I was just, I was just very in love with that idea. Blue Hill Farm is the name of his restaurant. Thank you for Googling that. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, that's why I got my computer here. And after looking it up now, I want to go to New York and try his restaurant. Yes. Oh, and he's such a wonderful speaker and he's got, he does another one on a, on a, um, foie gras farmer in, I want to say, mm, Portugal or Spain, who is making makes some of the best foie gras in the world is consistently rated some of the best, and he doesn't force feed his geese. It's completely humane. I've heard about that foie gras farmer, so I take it you're a foie gras eater. I have to confess, I had oh, I love foie gras. <laughs> We're actually now at the one year anniversary of sadly when foie gras was banned from California, which still I'm very sad about that. Yeah, I am too. I'm uh. Yeah. There are ways around it, I hear. Oh, yeah. Well, there's some restaurants that will give you a complimentary foie gras when you order something else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Good. Which is really upsetting PETA. And the thing about this foie gras that they're giving as a compliment, because it's illegal in California, they can't go to that one California farmer that we had. So what they're going to is this foie gras farm in some other state, and there... The foie gras is made from ducks that were abused. So banning foie gras, it didn't solve anything. Oh, no. People are still going to get the foie gras if they want. But the thing is, now they're going to get it from farms where the ducks weren't treated well versus this California farm they had where the ducks were treated very humanely. And certainly that farmer in Spain shows that there are humane ways to treat it. They don't even need to be fed through the tube. Of course, the whole tube thing is a misconception, too, because ducks don't have gag reflux. So it doesn't hurt them. These ducks, they know they're going to be fed through tube. They walk up to the farmers to get it. Yeah, interesting, huh? Yeah, I mean, it, really what should be banned are the inhumane practices around, if the, you know, whatever humane practices uh, exist around uh, the, the creation of foie gras, um, that's what should be banned. If, if there's a sustainable, um, humane way, then why ban it? It just doesn't. Th this is like when you. This is when you can hear Joel Salatin saying, "See, the government screwed that up." <laughs> um, this this is a regulation that doesn't make sense. Perhaps um, regulating the wrong thing. The inhumane ways are totally what should be banned, and there are much more inhumane things that are done to animals such as cows, pigs, chicken, than what's done to the ducks at these sustainable foie gras farms. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's awful. It is. So I'm glad to have a fellow foie gras lover. <laughs> Every year for my birthday, I have a little bit of foie gras with a glass of Chateau de Chem. Do you know what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. It's the best. It's one of the best combinations in the whole world. It's like strawberries and champagne. It just they two go together, and uh, that's that's that. I actually have, didn't have it this year, but traditionally that's my little birthday present to myself. Sounds like the perfect birthday present. <laughs>
We'll talk more about sauerkraut and about sustainable agriculture, but first, a word from our sponsors. Tier Health Sprouted Flour Company offers organic sprouted grains and flours for all your baking needs. We have more than 34 sprouted products, hundreds of recipes, and are always available to answer your flour and baking questions. Whether you're making sourdough breads, French baguettes, birthday cakes, granola, or pancakes, let us be your sprouted grain and flour source. Certified organic and kosher, featuring 20 gluten-free sprouted products. Plus, try the recently released einkorn and einkorn flour. Einkorn is an unhybridized wheat variety referred to as the original wheat. To order your sprouted flour, visit our website at organicsproutedflour.net or call toll-free at 877-401-6837. What is a healthy diet? Conflicting information is thrown at us daily. Help chart your course to wellness with a steady guide, the Weston A. Price Foundation. Our nutrition and health information is helping many families recover from degenerative disease and nutrient deficiencies. Join for only $40 a year and receive our quarterly journal. Visit our website, westonaprice.org, for more details. Olea Estates Olive Oil has been produced by the Cronus family on a small estate in Sparta, Greece since 1856. The olives are all certified organic and hand-picked. The oil is cold-pressed within 30 minutes and is extra virgin with an acidity of 0.24. I use Olea for all my olive oil needs, cooking, baking, salad dressing, hummus, and much more. Olea is distributed in the U.S. by Carl Berger. All products can be ordered on the website oleastates.com or by contacting Carl by email k-a-r-l at oleastates.com. And we're back. I'm talking to Catherine Lucas. She's the founder and chief crowd officer of the wonderful Farmhouse Culture. And Catherine, one of the things I love about Farmhouse Culture is you have some very unique flavors of sauerkraut, and I'm interested to know how you come up with these different varieties. Well, I'm so glad you asked, Erin. I was studying traditional foods and went back to school after my son um, graduated school and uh, finished finished my college. I didn't get around to because I was a young mom. Finished college, got to write a thesis um, for my bachelor's and wrote it on um, pre-corporate food traditions. And I studied all sorts of um, traditional cultures and I was just fascinated by the regionality aspect of traditional foods and how foods always really represented what was grown nearby and how resourceful people could be with what ingredients they had nearby. And and this was um, in 2005, something like that, and the local food movement was just starting to, to uh, gain momentum and I just loved this idea of regional krauts. I couldn't get it out of my head that we are eating the same sauerkraut in this country that we've been eating for literally hundreds of years. Um, it's, you know, sauerkraut is as American as apple pie and hot dogs. 70% of Americans eat sauerkraut. We just eat a lot less of it now than we used to. And I thought, why are we still eating the stuff that our ancestors brought over, just cabbage and salt, you know? Where in Korea, there are hundreds of types of kimchi, which is, you know, Korean sauerkraut. And all of these uh, kimchis represent the region's uh, abundance. And I thought, wow, why are we not doing that here in California, where we have this great bounty of wonderful things? I'm going to create, I'm going to create a, a, a palette here of flavors for myself to play with that are sourced locally. I, that's the rule. I can't use anything that's 
from, from, you know, around the world. It has to be grown in this area. And one of the first recipes I played with was cortido, which is an El Salvadorian pickled cabbage that they put on their pupusas. And um, I loved the ingredients, and I thought this could be a great kraut. It was cabbage, carrots, onion, daikon radish, and jalapenos. But how they got the zing was that they make a pineapple vinegar, and then they toss it all with that and then let it sit for a day or two, and it's wonderful. Like, well, we don't have pineapple doesn't grow here. Uh, and what can I replace that pineapple with? And I played around and played around. I couldn't find anything. All the spices I played with, they weren't that good. And then one day it dawned on me to smoke the jalapenos and smoked them out in the Weber and put them in with the kraut, fermented it all. And it was, it was just one of those eureka moments. It was so darn good. And that really ignited my passion for trying to create flavors that represented the region, but also flavors that were sort of traditional in terms of culinary profiles. I'm very influenced by, um, as I mentioned earlier, by European culinary traditions. And, and um, horseradish and leek are a classic combination in German cooking. And I thought, I bet those would be good in the fermentation process. Played around with that, and that worked. Apple and fennel, those are a great combination that, you know, in, in traditional culinary um, mixes. Let me try that. And it's just like, wow, I looked around. I was like, why is nobody else doing this? This is like fun. This is awesome. I have like a new palette of flavors to play with here. And it just really took off from there. And, and uh, yeah, that's how it all sort of evolved. And, and um, I, I can't tell you how exciting. And I still get goosebumps when I think about it. Isn't that silly? But I, I just, <laughs> I was excited about finally having some, some fermented food that really represented uh, California's regional abundance and also our cultural diversity. So this is sort of a fermentation fusion. Yeah, exactly. A hybrid. And you know what's fun, Aaron, is that we're, California is almost exactly halfway between Munich and Seoul. I love that. That's great. And California is certainly known for its fusion, so that's very California to combine sauerkraut with a number of other traditional foods from other cultures like kimchi and beet kvass and all types of different ones. I love how you mix that. The garlic dill pickle and certainly the smoked jalapeno. I love that because I love pickled jalapenos, but everyone that I've seen on the market is all pasteurized. So I love that there's a fermented jalapeno that I can buy in stores, and I love putting that on my burger. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's great that way. Yeah, and you know, another thing that's that's interesting about California and fermentation, and I didn't realize this when I first started, is that it's really the ideal location for fermentation in, in many, many ways. Uh, first of all, we have this abundance of ingredients year-round. It's the only place I know of in the country where we can grow cabbage year-round. Uh, we've got lots of sea salt right out here in our front yard. Mm -hmm. And the most important, um, the second most important uh, reason that it's so, um, so great here for fermentation is the temperature. The ideal fermentation fermentation temperature is between 64 and 68 degrees. We like 64 degrees. And it's almost effortless for us to create a fermentation space here in Santa Cruz. Uh, we literally regulate our fermentation space with a light bulb. If we want it a little warmer, we screw in a couple light bulbs. If we want it a little cooler, we unscrew them. And, and in an insulated room, uh, it requires almost no energy to maintain a great fermentation space here. So if you're trying to ferment, say, in New York, 
and it's in the winter time and it's freezing outside, now you've got to heat a room to get it up to 64 degrees. And then if it's the summertime, now you've got to really cool it down with an air conditioner to get it to 64 degrees. So uh, these are sort of considerations as this movement uh, evolves. You know, um, I think we're going to see California emerge as sort of the fermentation capital of the country. I think so, too. I mean, already it's a great place just to find local organic produce and the whole locavore movement that started in Berkeley. And I know where I live in L.A., there's farmers markets just about every day year round. I imagine Santa Cruz is a great place for local organic foods. And I imagine that your business benefits very well from being located out of there. Yeah, it really does. This is a just a fantastic community in terms of organic produce and availability and also a consumer base that's really educated and uh, fairly savvy. And I know in California, there are a number of fermentation festivals now going on. In August in Santa Barbara, they're going to have their fermentation festival. And I know also, I believe it's in September in Santa Rosa, they have the Farm to Fermentation Festival. Yes, yes. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. It's exciting. I mean, the first one we went to, you know, I don't know, not many people showed up at all. And the last one we went to, you know, three years later was just uh, amazing how many people showed up. And, and the interest level is, is just um, it's just so big now. And it's going mainstream. This this all this is going mainstream. Uh, we're going to be in uh, Red Book magazine for oh, ladies wow. in, in July. Um, we've got some other press coming up that, you know, I, I, I shouldn't talk about until I'm more certain, but in very sort of mainstream press, uh, the, the, the culinary world's really sort of standing up and looking at this, this whole fermentation thing. And it's, it's moving from this sort of fringe subculture, hippie food to, uh, maybe I think, a more of a mainstream condiment that Americans can reintroduce back into their their diets. And it's really exciting time to be in this business. Well, certainly when you have the articles out, let me know because I can post those to the appropriate omnivore Facebook page. I'm seeing that too, that fermentation is becoming more acceptive just in general, not just as far as the eco movement and the sustainable food movement, but in the mainstream health industry. I mean, a great advantage that fermentation has is probiotics because a lot of people now are grasping more of the benefits of probiotics and you have probiotic supplements, which I'm not totally opposed to. I think for people that have a really low probiotic intake that have very low bacteria, there might be some benefit in taking some of those supplements, but really the best way to get probiotics is foods that were just naturally fermented. Yeah, absolutely. And as as our understanding of the very complex and fascinating world of microorganisms increases, I think we'll understand that by isolating one strain of bacteria and calling it a probiotic supplement, we'll be fairly naive. Um, we, we don't fully understand what's going on, but we do know that um, there's an entire um, family of microorganisms in sauerkraut, for instance. They used to think there were just a handful of bacteria, and I think some, some crazy number, like 80, have been identified. And they're working in tandem together to create this healthy food for your body. And um, I don't know, like if you were to isolate just one of those strains and say, okay, this is, this is going to be good for you. I'm not convinced that that's going to be wise in the long term. It's almost like a monoculture sort of, <laughs> um, approach. And, uh, I'm hoping that people recognize that until our understanding really 
uh, increases, and I think it will, the next 10 years we're going to see huge advances now with our understanding of what's going on with bacteria in our bodies, um, that, you know, that they stick to the natural, <laughs> you know, kimchi and kombucha and beet kvass and yogurts. And, and uh, it seems also like the studies indicate that, you know, you should have a variety of different um, cultures from all of the foods I just mentioned, not just, you know, not just drink beet kvass every day or just one type of probiotic supplement. So it, it does seem to be, um, uh, our knowledge seems to be increasing in this area, and it, which is really exciting for us. Oh, you certainly should have a variety. For breakfast today, I had, of course, some farmhouse sauerkraut, and I also had some kombucha as well as some sourdough bread. So three different ferments right there just in my breakfast meal. And certainly in my lunch and dinner, I'm sure I'll have other types of ferments. How did you eat your sauerkraut for breakfast? What did you eat it with? I just had it raw just with a little sourdough bread with some raw milk butter on it and a glass of raw milk. Nice. Very nice. We love we love the smoked jalapeno um, omelets with a little cheddar cheese. Mm, that sounds good. It, yeah, eggs and, and, the, and the smoked jalapeno sauerkraut are very happy together. Right. And so is that cooked with the eggs? Yeah, but, you know, if you do it fast enough, I don't think, it, you know, I don't think it kills the probiotic bacteria. Right. I imagine there's still some benefits in it. And there's certainly a lot of foods you can pair it with. I know you were talking about living in Germany for a little bit. And I know sauerkraut makes a great pairing with the German sausages, the bratwursts. Actually, in the Weston A. Price Wise Traditions Quarterly Journal, there was a very interesting article that showed how you need to have sauerkraut or some type of ferment while eating a processed sausage. In order to help digest the meat? They compared blood cells in people of ones that had eaten the bratwurst with the sauerkraut versus ones that had eaten bratwurst without, and they found that the ones that ate just the bratwurst without any sauerkraut, their blood cells were stuck together. But when you pair it with the sauerkraut, then they had the blood cells that were healthy and separated. Wow, how fascinating. And I imagine that part of the rise of sauerkraut is because German food in general is becoming more popular. I know in Los Angeles, we're seeing popping up everywhere these sausage restaurants. Yes. Yeah. And the beer garden style uh, restaurants are also popping up all over San Francisco. And, and um, it's kind of fun. I mean, German food, if if you eat a balanced German diet, it can be very healthy and, and it doesn't have to be heavy and, and you know, it has kind of a bad rap. Um, one of the things that I did struggle with when I lived there was I, I used to say German food's too white. I wanted more green. And so um, I added a lot more greens. So if you can eat German food, just make sure you get enough greens. <laughs> what kind of greens did you add? Well, you know, I added, um, for instance, one of the dishes that's very popular where I lived uh, is Gäseschwätzle, which is the, like the, the German version of macaroni and cheese. And instead of making the noodles uh, just with flour and egg, I'd add spinach. Or I'd, I'd add herbs and, and then put those noodles into the into the recipe. Um, but greens, I mean, gosh, they have the most wonderful salads there. You know, uh, it's called um, Feldsalat, which I think is mash here. Mash, do you know mash? I'm not familiar with that. It goes through the snow. You know, um, they, they eat a lot of wonderful greens. You just have to search them out uh, in the wintertime. In addition to pairing sauerkraut with some sausages or eggs or I like to put on my burger, what are some other foods that you think sauerkraut goes well with cooking or topping it with? You know, we decide, so we sell our sauerkraut at eight farmers markets a week. And it's a great experience because we get all this customer feedback. And 
the most common question is, well, what do I do with sauerkraut, you know, beyond the hot dog or, or, or the sausage? And, and we just sort of naturally have evolved this recipe collection of customers, customer favorites and employee favorites and, uh, and then some traditional favorites as well that we've sort of rediscovered. And, and um, let's see, with our ginger beet kraut, which is uh, our latest uh, kraut, it's really fresh and crisp tasting. And it's so good simply tossed into a salad. And then I discovered not long ago that it was fabulous on a, a three-seed sourdough um, piece of toast with some goat butter. I put a lot, little bit of avocado on that and put the ginger beet on that and then sprinkled some gomasio over it. It was fabulous. It was like this great. And so that inspired us to make sushi with it. And we made sushi with, um, with those ingredients, essentially, and the addition of, yeah, goat cheese. It was so good. Um, the horseradish leek is one of my very favorite krauts for vegetarians. My partner is vegetarian, and so I'm always looking for ways to to get um, uh, you know more kraut into him. And he loves roasted beets. And then I chop up the horseradish leek and toss it in with the roasted beets right at the end, um, or I, I'll sprinkle it over chopped finely again over grilled asparagus and then a little sieved egg over, over that. It's wonderful. Horseradish um, really loves vegetables and, and it's not just a meat condiment. And then uh, the garlic dill pickle is my answer to my frustration at not being able to make a pickle that I really, really like. I'm really too picky about pickles. But I discovered that by putting the same ingredients into sauerkraut, I could create a sauerkraut that tasted just like pickles. And we now call it our gateway kraut because, <laughs> because people who think they don't like sauerkraut uh, will try this kraut because it tastes, you know, it's hard. You don't really ever meet anybody who doesn't like pickles. And we chop that up and we use it as you would pickles. So we put it up, we put it in uh, egg salad. We put it in potato salad and tuna salad. Uh, best, best potato salad I ever made was last year for a for a July 4th event and um, loaded up with a lot of pickled pickle kraut juice and uh, and a whole package of um, the, the pickle kraut. Uh, so those are just some of the ideas. You know, the, the smoked jalapeno is really fun. It's great on all uh, Latin American sorts of food. We love it in quesadillas or with rice and beans or on top of papusas. Um, and uh, we like it with eggs and on grilled cheese, too. Gosh, I love it. on All of these krauts are great on grilled cheese. And not the ginger beet. I don't think the ginger beet would be good on grilled cheese. But all the others. Yeah, it doesn't sound as great. <laughs> no. <laughs> not as good. And then we're having a lot of fun with our kimchi. Hey, did you see in the paper um, a few days ago that Michelle Obama's favorite food is kimchi? And they came out with a kimchi recipe using ingredients from the White House garden. Oh, wow. Isn't that fun? That is. That's fascinating. That's great. Yeah. Glad to see since a lot of people associate her with health and with nutrition that she recommends. I'm glad to see that she's supporting a fermented food, a traditional food. Yeah. And we've got, you probably have this down in Southern California too, but this fusion um, Korean tacos. Yes. Oh my gosh. I mean, that's just fabulous. These tacos topped with, topped with kimchi and then topped with a fried egg. Oh, Really, really good stuff. So we, um, we, we like our kimchi in a lot of uh, traditional Korean dishes, but 
also, you know, a lot of us just eat it straight out of the pouch. I agree with you about the garlic dill pickle kraut being the gateway kraut because I know myself, I only started eating kraut within the last year really with discovering Weston Price, but I've loved pickles my whole life and you said you're a pickle fan too. When you were a kid, did you ever drink the pickle juice? Oh, yes. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> <laughs> I loved it. I did too, and I find most people that love these ferments, like the pickles and the kraut and the kombucha, I find that we all did that as kids. Yeah, that's funny, right? That's funny. It is. I thought I was the only one that did it. It makes me um, wonder about this this new research that uh, suggests that there are three entero types, three body types, um, very distinct bacteria populations. And they believe that it's going to be a... Are you familiar with this? Sounds familiar. Uh, and they, they believe that uh, this is going to... You know, this this is sort of a, a human... Um, gosh, I can't say what I want to say here. That it's going to be as important as blood typing and understanding the human body. Oh, yes. Right. I know about this. And I wonder if, like, those of us who have a specific sort of enterotype crave more of these fermented foods than maybe others do. I, I think that's going to be interesting research. That's a good question. This is the human microbiome project that you're talking about? Yes. Thank you. Thank you for <laughs> helping me with that. Right. And it's interesting that we're talking about craving these and how it depends on what your genes are made up of. Because the thing about this and talking about how this is now making its way into the mainstream is that this is all traditional food that we used to eat. So it's something that it's kind of a new food, but really it's just going back to the traditions. And these are foods that kept cultures healthy for generations. Yeah, I think so. And you know what else I think? I think that there's a recognition when our body comes in contact with this bacteria that we've evolved with and then removed from our diets. And then we add it back into our diets all these years later, all these generations later. I think that the body remembers, the genes remember, and there's a, this recognition. And I think that's why some of us just like wake up and feel so good when we eat these fermented foods. It's, I think it's just the key to good health. It's the, it's the foundation. Um, and it seems like that's, uh, that's now being backed up by, by med, uh, modern science, which is really exciting. I think the body recognizes it too, because it's not that long ago that we ate it and it takes centuries even more than centuries, millenniums, if even more than that, to really adopt to different foods. So our bodies, I think, definitely remember it. We're just about out of time. But before we go, Catherine, tell the listeners where they can find the website for Farmhouse Culture. Uh, yeah, we're farmhouseculture.com. And got lots of fun information there and information about all of our uh, krauts and kimchi. And uh, yeah. All right. Well, Catherine, it's been a pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much for having me, Aaron. This was really fun. And now for the desserts, how to live appropriately in the upcoming week. Today and tomorrow is the 8th annual LA Wine Fest. You'll have the chance to taste several different wines from Southern California region. And a portion of the proceeds from the event go to Food Forward, which donates locally grown food from people's homes to food pantries. For more information on the event, check out the website at lawinefest.com. Also, tomorrow, June 9th at 4.30, the Culture Club 101 in Pasadena will be teaching a class on an introduction to backyard beekeeping. You can learn everything from starting chemical-free beekeeping in your own backyard, the functions of the different bees, how to get the right equipment, and how to keep your bees healthy. To pre-register and reserve your seat, 
go to cultureclub101.com. And finally, this Tuesday, June 11th at 6 p.m., the Institute of Domestic Technology in Altadena is teaching classes on how to cure, smoke, and infuse your own bacon. The classes will be taught by Rashida Purifoy, chef and owner of the small batch baking company Cast Iron Gourmet. To enroll in the class, visit instituteofdomestictechnology.com. For a more detailed list of events, check out the Weston A. Price Pasadena community calendar at westonapricepasadena.blogspot.com. That's all for this week of The Appropriate Omnivore. My guest next week is C.J. Hunter, director of the documentary The Perfect Human Diet. For more information on my guests, visit my website at appropriateomnivore.com. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.